0: Welcome to this special edition of Ghost Stories featuring Transaction Capital CEO David Hurwitz as my guest. He joins me to respond to obviously what has been an incredibly tough couple of weeks, not just for Transaction Capital shareholders, but I think for anyone involved in the business. And I'm grateful to him for being willing to engage. Full disclosure, this podcast has not been paid for by Transaction Capital. It has not been sponsored. This is purely for information purposes for the retail investor base who read Ghost Mail and listen to my podcasts. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of Ghost Stories. This is a particularly interesting one this week. It's the company that everyone is talking about, Transaction Capital. I've been holding shares for a long time. I watched them go beautifully up. And then I watched them come horribly down. You know, I didn't trim my position because I was worried about paying so much tax. Uh, a problem that I don't have anymore on this particular position, but it is what it is. That's the markets for you. Bought some more. I think it was on the Friday morning when it opened. I could be wrong, but when it opened at around about $10, bucks, 10 bucks 50 I bought there. I uh, wish I'd gotten it at around 8 rand when it dropped later that morning, but sadly not. So just in full disclosure, I am sitting still with a transaction capital position. I think my in price is now in the sort of low teens. And David Hurwitz, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Now, the background to this, and I always like to make sure everyone understands this, is I wrote about transaction capital in Ghost Mail last week. And off the back of that, you reached out and offered me the opportunity to chat to you. In turn, I went back and suggested we do a podcast so that everyone can hear it. And you graciously said yes. So I want to be very clear here. No one has paid for or sponsored this particular podcast i always like to make sure that everyone involved in ghost mail knows that this is not uh, transaction capital specifically paying for exposure Uh, you've not seen any of the questions so we're going to have a good honest independent chat this morning and i appreciate the fact that you've been willing to do it as a podcast so that we can share it with the broader audience so thank you for your time this morning after what i'm confident has been a very ugly couple of weeks
1: thanks for having me on the show um, and on this podcast, uh, it has been uh, ugly as an understatement. It's been probably the toughest few weeks of my uh, career. Um, I do follow you on Twitter, so I have seen some of the questions that you're following uh, have suggested you ask me. I hope you don't ask me all of those because they were quite gruesome. Um, but yeah, we are, we are um, you know trying to uh, run our businesses as best we can. And I think the one thing that has come out of all of this is how does transaction capital Uh, regain its credibility and I think the only way that you can really do that is by, well there are a few ways you can do it, first of all through delivery, Um, but second of all through engaging people and um, you know getting them to try and understand what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve.
0: Yeah, I agree and I fully respect that and there are plenty of JSC listed companies that do not engage and some of them engage in ways that would frighten people, so I appreciate the way you've done it, I genuinely do, don't worry I'm not working down the list from Twitter. I must say, asking that question on Twitter, you know, there's some really good stuff in there. And then there's just the usual troll level responses, people with an axe to grind, people who are just, you know, just being nasty. Um, And obviously, we're not going to just work through a list like that. But I didn't ignore that list. I obviously took it into account with the questions that I've put together because we need to address sort of where the focus areas are. But the first one is kind of a, a high-level question, and I think you know, everyone was, was talking about We Buy Cars, and what annoyed me so much in the media, and this is typical of the media, is headlines like We Buy Cars owner sees its shares crash. Now, the shares have not crashed because of We Buy Cars, but because it's nice and clickbaity, that's what people do, and now everyone assumes, they don't even read the article, they just assume, oh, We Buy Cars is going out of business. I mean, this is the level of misinformation that gets out there in one headline. It drives me insane. So we're going to address some of that today. And I think SA Taxi is a business that a lot of people have heard of, but they don't fully understand what it actually does. So where I'd like to kick us off is, you know, in layman's terms, if someone just asked you around the braai, what does SA Taxi actually do? Maybe not complete layman's terms, because people listening to this podcast do understand finance. And then also, what are the conditions under which it performs well? And then I want to get to the conditions that broke it. So in your mind, SA Taxi's Perfect operating environment. What does that look like and why?
1: So what we realized probably about uh well, two decades ago um is that the minibus taxi sector in South Africa is essential to the operating of South Africa. I always say um that it's non-discretionary spend, it moves fifteen million commuters around every day, and as those commuters step out of their front door, whether they are socially active or economically active, the first few rents that they're going to spend is going to be within the minibus taxi sector. So we realized that um, the minibus taxi sector, number one, is here to stay. Um, and number two, uh, that it was completely underserved from a financial services uh, perspective. Um, the beautiful thing about our business is that the commercial imperative and the social imperative are absolutely aligned. Uh, and we realized that we were able to support the minibus taxi sector, support black entrepreneurs, um, improve public transport, um, and do all of this kind of social benefit, but also make money at the same time. Um, we realized that we could do that and we were very, very excited about uh, moving into this uh, sector. What is it that we do? Uh, essentially, we support Small businessmen, SMEs, to run a minibus taxi route, we would provide them with. Initially, we were just providing them with the finance, and slowly as the business grew, we realised that to manage our risks, we needed to do more. So we needed to be in control of the insurance as well. Uh, you know, because if the vehicle's in an accident, then at least your 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 loan claim is secured, or you can get a claim against that. Um, we realised that if we could repair the cars. Again, we you know, we didn't want to become a, a huge repair business or an auto refurbishment business, but we realized that that could allow us to reduce the cost of an insurance claim if you did the work yourself. Or if you repossessed the car, you could repair that car um, and then sell it for a higher price. So we then moved, we kind of vertically integrated and went from finance to insurance uh, to repair work. Um, and then, of course, if you're repairing the car and you need to sell the car, well, you might as well own a few dealerships. And, and that's how we vertically uh, integrated our business model into the minibus taxi sector. So that's really what we do. Uh, we support minibus uh, taxi operators through finance and insurance. Um, we use things like tracking and auto refurbishment and auto sales as a way to mitigate our losses or protect our business from such losses. Um, and I, I guess then you could ask the question, which you have asked me, well, in what environment do we do well? We always say that we do well if our client does well. So if the minibus taxi operator has sufficient cash flow um, to make a good living, and if these routes are profitable, then they will, um, you know, that that industry will expand, they'll buy more vehicles, and and they can afford to pay us. So that's kind of the the underlying premise. If he does well, we do well. You may have heard me say that often before. Um, And unfortunately, you know, since COVID, uh, this sector and our clients have not done well, and that's obviously impacted
0: us. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, this one of the biggest things I wanted to ask you, really. There was some rhetoric around how the issues in SA Taxi have gone from being, in your view, cyclical to more structural. And if I look back, I think there was an investor presentation that you released recently, and, and there was a very cool but also not cool chart in there that showed a lot of the issues that have come through in the last couple of years. You had that bar chart with all the different lockdown levels, and then it just kind of showed it's just one disaster after the next. If it's not riots, then it's the Toyota flooding, then it's COVID, it's fuel prices. I mean, it's it's really just been horrible for the last couple of years. I'm terrified that you think this is our new normal for the rest of our lives, that we're going to be dealing with these, you know, seven plagues a year. I'm hoping not. But in terms of what makes the business structurally broken in your view, maybe broken is an unfair word, but clearly it needs a rejink. Are some of these things not just a function of a lot of bad luck in a row, and if there was just a clean year or a relatively clean year where there aren't all these horrible things happening, would that not go a long way towards fixing it by itself?
1: I think so, guys. So, um, you know, you talk about in business these these hundred-year events, uh, you know, which in the old days would have been something like, I don't know, the Spanish flu or something like that. And then, you know, we had uh, uh, a few hundred-year events in the space of three years. Uh, we had covid um, and some of the acts I've got, like COVID, we had that terrible flooding in KZN, which uh, closed the Toyota plant, and that's the main uh, product that we finance. Um, mm-hmm. We have had um, the riots in KwaZulu-Natal. We had terrible taxi unrest in the Western Cape, um, which was very disruptive. Um, and then we've had uh, events, um, I guess, to some extent from the war with Russia and the Ukraine, which, you know, pushed the fuel price through the roof. Um, We've had very high interest rates and very sharp interest rates. Let's see what happens this week. But I think the consensus is that uh, rates will go up again. Um, So quick increases in interest rates. Um, And through all of this, Toyota has kept on increasing the price of the car. So uh, there are so many events that have just gone against the minibus taxi sector. In the past, what we used to see was as bus and train decays, we get a little bit of growth in the sector through commuters moving from those modes of transport into minibus. and then we get about two fare increases a year. And kind of that growth in commuter volume plus a fare increase is normally enough to offset uh, the typical things that we see: small fuel increases, you know, moderate interest rate increases, and um, manageable vehicle price increases. Um, of course, what we've seen now is only one fare increase in three and a half years and we actually believe that the commuter volumes have shrunk. Um, and that is all shown in that, that, uh, that cool uh, slide that you speak about, where we see that um, we expected the minibus taxi industry to recover quickly, but not fully. And it did recover quickly, but not fully. And uh, we can see that in that our, our clients aren't driving as many kilometers as they normally used to drive. And that means that they don't have the passengers to keep them as busy as they would. Um, and this is all reflected in in lower payments. So, um, the sector is absolutely under strain. Uh, the one thing I, I mean, I regret a few things that have happened over the last few weeks, but the one thing I absolutely regret is using the word structural. Um, maybe it was just a bad choice of words, but what, what we certainly do see is that um, Many of the events that have happened in the sector seem to be here for a longer period than we ever would have estimated. So by way of example, fuel prices, by way of example, um, the way that the, that the uh, population moves around. So those type of, those type of um, impacts I don't think are, are short term in nature. Uh, they could be somewhere between cyclical and structural, but let's see. And yes, what we really need is is we do need a a, a year of, um, or some some improvements or some tailwinds. And that was the strategy. So from COVID all the way through, we said that there'd be a full recovery. um, And and we kept on believing that. We kept on saying it will come, it will come, it will come. And unfortunately, earnings, you know, kind of were, were not great in 2020. Again, not great in 2021, and then in 2022, went down again. So, um, And all of the strategies that we implemented, whilst they were good and whilst they delivered some results, and those strategies were kind of incremental things like cutting costs, improving our credit, being clever as how how we collect. And of course, the big one was increasing the quantum of vehicles that we repair and refinance. Um, What we're saying is that we need... We need to do something a little bit more bold, which is the strategy we've come out with now. In the event that this that this sector does not recover, and we can't, I mean, we've been relying on this. Your question was, you know, don't you just need a good year? We've been waiting for three years, and I don't think that's a management plan. You know, um, you know, if my if my strategy was to hope for a good, you know, for a recovery in the sector, um, you know, you should put your money elsewhere, quite frankly
0: hope is not a strategy unless you keep buying Steinoff at 30 something cents as I keep writing in Ghost mail and uh no I mean it's good to hear that I'm pleased that maybe the structural comment was maybe not quite right because I, I obviously people have this debate like crazy you know you debate it with your friends you debate it with people you consult to or work with or respect in the market and I think there was some head scratching around the structural comments I'm glad to hear you kind of um, you know, fix that up a little bit, because the SA t- or, or the taxi industry is definitely not structural It is structural in that it is going to be here forever. It's not in structural decline, that's for sure. I mean, there's just no alternative. Uh, bluntly, unfortunately, we've seen what happens when governments try to put in alternatives. So it's not like multi-choice facing structural headwinds or Telcom's old business that is quite literally dying in front of our eyes. You know, I think this really has just been a lot of bad luck. It's part of why I It was very sad to see my large gains on paper evaporate, but it's also part of why I bought more and thought, okay, well, you know, this happens. Um, The markets really reacted very strongly to this, but SA Taxi, if SA Taxi goes away, socially, it's a very big problem because maybe this is one last question around this is, you know, why do the banks, firstly, I suppose, do they play in this space really? And if not, like, why not? Why can you guys do this and they can't? You know, what is the difference?
1: Yeah, so the banks do play here, and, um, you know, we, we've, we've always kind of broken the segment into three pieces of the sector into three segments. Yeah. At the top is where we and the banks uh, participate. Those are operators um, on, on highly profitable routes, uh, which, you know, can that route can support finance and insurance um, on a new car. Uh, So we operate there, the banks operate there, Um, at the very bottom end of the market we all know what those kind of vehicles look like, those are vehicles which are run on routes that are only profitable on the basis that that vehicle has no finance or insurance attached to it, Um, and that's, you know, nobody can really operate in, in that segment of the market just isn't enough profitability and then what we realized um, probably about 10 years ago is that at the top end of the market when you repossess that car if you if you refurbish that car you can sell that car into the middle market and that is an operator who is on a route that cannot afford finance on a new car but can afford finance on a slightly cheaper second-hand car Um, the trick was that you had to make sure that the car was built robustly enough to to endure the rigors of, a, of the South African minibus taxi sector. So that's why we rebuilt this refurbishment capability. And that was kind of a market that we could play in, um, a market that we actually made for ourselves and that we could uh, operate in, um, you know, without uh, others being able to operate there. So the, why can't the banks operate there? Because you need to be prepared to finance a secondhand car. And you can only really do that if you're sure that that car will operate uh, efficiently. Because if the car doesn't operate, then kind of mechanical risk or operational risk manifests itself in insurance and finance risk. So so that was our business model. Um, And you're right, the sector's here to stay. Um, But from a finance perspective, whilst, whilst the sector faces these headwinds, the market is smaller, and that's the adjustment that we've made to the business model.
0: Most importantly, are you guys responsible for fitting those outrageous sound systems that are internationally famous? Is that part of a quality renewed taxi or is it just to make sure it mechanically works?
1: <laughs> we do that in all of our cars. My, my car has uh, no, uh, It's got
0: nothing
1: to do with us. We, we actually are not worried about anything on the fringe of the car. We just make sure that the car can operate. We're not interested in sound systems, sunroofs or anything else. Only stuff which is income-producing, and a <laughs> finance system uh, a sound system is not income-producing.
0: That's that's debatable, actually. I a sound system might be part of the appeal. No, I'm obviously, uh, obviously, just kidding. So I guess the the lesson here, or the, or the learning here for people who maybe don't know SA taxi very well, is this is the the mid-market, and that's why they get squeezed first, and that makes sense. So, you know, it's routes that are economically viable under the right conditions, and if those conditions persist, I mean. The reality is they have to become economically viable because again it goes to the point that taxis are here to stay so i'm not sh- i mean maybe this is another qu- this is a hard question actually is you know the fares are a supply and demand situation if taxis become too expensive a lot of people can walk um you know that is an alternative if they if they work close enough to where they live actually i know a lot of people do that but at some point in time they have to just start paying for these taxis but if they can't if they can't get the fares up if if the fuel price stays where it is, like, where does this end? We can't have the South African taxi industry falling over, you know? Are there government subsidies? Is anyone talking about this? Or are we kind of just all assuming that this thing will survive? Because there's no plan B in the South African transport system. It doesn't exist. Socially, the taxis have to be there.
1: Yeah, you know, we've been asked the question um, now for about, you know, it's been 20 years, uh, you know, where people say to us, when will bus and train displace minibus taxi, and um, we, we never ignore that question and we, and, and we track that like mad, but certainly over the last, uh, since 2000, sorry, since 96, we have only seen, um, you know, bus and train lose market share and minibus taxi gain market share, so it's more accessible, uh more reliable and historically was also more affordable um, elsewhere in the world I, th- I think there's only one country that I've, that uh, we've read about and that is turkey where public transport is completely self-sustainable and not government subsidized elsewhere in the world all public transport systems are subsidized um, our problem in south africa is that we do subsidize public transport but it goes into bus and train and not into minibus and of course if there was if there was a, a viable way um, for government to subsidize minibus and this is something that we've been lobbying for for ages um, you know that would first of all that would help uh, the, the commuting population dramatically um but would take away a lot of these social issues that we have in our country of unsafe public transport and of course it would be fa- uh, you know fantastic uh, for our business um but we've never seen that happen um, there's been the scrapping allowance, which has been very ineffectual. Uh, there was a covert fund, which was put together, which was completely inaccessible by, by the minibus taxi sector. It was for small business, but you had to be. You had, it was distributed through the banks, and most of our clients are not banked. And the and the vast majority of the of the minibus taxi sector is um, never mind not banked, but has no financial products attached to it. So it made no sense um i guess the question is can the sector um just say well to hell with it you know we can't operate at a loss certainly during COVID, the sector operated at a loss they're probably operating um, with lesser profitability and more marginally profitable routes i guess the question is could the sector just say well to hell with it we're increasing fares um, you have this concept in South Africa of the working poor where where people spend uh, more than 40% of their salaries on, on transport, which is just our watering. Um, but I do think that uh, at a point in time the sector will have to increase uh, fares, specifically if some of these structural and in inverted commas uh, elements remain around for long. So if the fuel price doesn't come down, if interest rates don't uh, you know, relax a bit, um you know then the only and if commuter tra- uh, uh, patterns don't change back to how they were which I, I i think that one could actually be structural um you know then the only way that you can kind of square off this equation is to increase revenue which means increase fares
0: yeah all those social issues in one place absolutely right and <laughs> it's it's tough um it's tough on consumers the working poor i haven't actually specifically heard it described that way before but it's a very very good description. I can't believe Turkey is the only country in the world that has that. I mean Turkey is such a financial mess in every other respect, but of course they would have this <laughs> self-sustaining public transport. It's it's just amazing where you find these little these little gems. Um I suppose then what we should talk about is the funding costs. So obviously your income is an expense for the taxis, clearly. Uh you're not a bank, so you don't have the benefit of beautiful sticky deposits in a current account where you're paying them, you know. 25 basis points a year for the money and, 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 and lending it out at a beautiful big rate. The, the banks have that natural gigantic advantage. You've got to fund through more wholesale methods. So I know there's a lot of securitization vehicles in the structure. Um, there's been you know some stuff on SENS around there are no cross guarantees, cross defaults in the group, et cetera. I think we should spend a few minutes just on how SA Taxi is funded. And just for those who you know are maybe not familiar with banking, how do these... Just a very high level. You know, what does that wholesale funding model look like? The different securitization vehicles. How is it structured? You know, just a few minutes on just giving people a lay of the land on that.
1: So this is actually uh, this is actually where I, I grew up. Um, uh, I was in the banking sector. You know, when I was when I was younger, um, and then I worked in a in a, a kind of a, a specialty uh, financial services business, which was involved in. Uh, securitization. So I always used to say if you can't explain um, securitization to your mother-in-law, then you don't know what you're doing. So I'll try to keep it uh, basic. Um, but really what we've, what, what we've done is because we are not uh, a bank and because we don't have access to retail deposits, um, what we've done is we've made sure that we have as broad and diverse a uh, funding base as possible. So we've split up. We've accessed our funding, um, you know, from local funders and from international funders. Uh, we access our funding from banks, from people who run uh, institutions, which are kind of the life life insurance companies in South Africa, from the asset management uh, industry in South Africa, and then what we call social money. So that would be people who are investing because our business does good. Uh, they call it development finance institutions. So people like. The development bank of south africa the african development bank and then um, public money from other countries such as america and uh, france and the netherlands uh, who run their own kind of government funds which invest again into uh, developing countries so why do we do all of this because what we see is that different we call it pools of capital or different capital providers um, react differently to different risks so at In an environment such as this, we would see kind of the American government, um, which is the old OPEC or DFC, that's the fund over there, or from the Netherlands, the fund would be called the FMO. They would actually step forward and say, This is a time when there's market dislocation, as they did with us in the global financial crisis. And they said, This is when we step forward to create financial stability. Whereas, you know, some guy who's just looking for a commercial return in a fixed income fund might run for the hills. In an event such as this. So that's why we've kind of created uh, these diverse um, um, pools of capital. Uh, essentially what we then do is we put all, all of our funding into different um, entities with specific security so that there can't be any um, contamination risk. Uh, the first area where you would do that is across our businesses. So if something goes wrong in a debt structure in SA Taxi that cannot, we call it cross-default clauses. Uh, there are no cross-default clauses where a default or, or, you know, something going wrong in SA Taxi causes some type of default event in either Newton or We Buy Cars. So everything is held separately. Um, and then within the different uh, funding structures within SA Taxi, again, there are no cross-default clauses. So if something goes wrong in a structure that we've put together for um, one of our South African banks, um, That can't impact one of the structures that we've put together for one of the development funds. So it's very, very, uh, um, we've thought about this for long and hard. Uh, We also don't use short term debt, we use long term debts. Uh, You know, the issue with short term debt is that it needs to be renewed all the time, um, again, which can create liquidity risk. Uh, We try not to use bullets. Bullet funding would be where you borrow an amount and only pay interest. So you borrow half a billion rand, you pay interest for five years, and then on a day, you have to refinance that half a billion rand. Again, that can create liquidity risk. So we try and do everything possible um, to keep our funding structures um, as safe as possible and as risk-free as possible. The negative of that is that it comes at a higher funding cost. So shorter dated money is cheaper than long dated money, um, etc. cetera. Uh, raising money from, uh, you know, offshore is expensive because you have to convert all of that uh, dollar and pound into rand. So it comes at a cost, but we think, um, you know, it, it, it is better for us because it allows us to reduce our risk. It's
0: a pity you can't do hope, a... I hope, I
1: hope, so, Sorry, okay. guys. I hope if my mother-in-law is listening, I hope she understood that.
0: <laughs> and uh... I wanted to say it's a pity that um, maybe one day there will be, if there wasn't almost a taxi driver mutual bank of some kind, you know, where you can bank all these drivers and then actually use some of that funding to lend to others and bring the entire cost of funding down. So maybe it's time for uh, the taxi driver mutual bank, David, and you can get some retail deposits in.
1: We've thought about that a lot.
0: Um, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) But you know, the one thing that uh, obviously it comes with different levels of compliance, and yeah. for an entrepreneurial, agile business, uh, you know, that's something that's often been uh, something we, we've, um, not that we shy away from compliance, not at all, um, but uh, we don't see ourselves as a bank and as bankers. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, we are, we are a, a, I don't say single product, but certainly, at, you know, to date we've been a single sector as far as our, our, our exposure. And I don't know if you could get general deposits, you know, going into a, a single sector. Um, perhaps you could get deposits from taxi operators. That's one thing, and you know, lending those deposits to other operators. But as a general, uh, you know, deposit-taking institution, probably wouldn't work.
0: I'm going to ask you one more question. No, two more questions on SA taxi. Let me ask you this one, which is the unions or the the taxi associations' position on all of this. I mean, they're a shareholder. Um, you know, they equally. I'm assuming have taken a bit of a bath here what is the relationship like on that side i mean i mean they obviously are right at the coalface of the reasons for it so they must surely understand it but is there kind of this understanding that it's going to take a while to fix you I mean, obviously it's difficult for you to fully answer this publicly but whatever you can give us i'll take
1: yes so although um the the industry has been the shareholder only since 2018 um they have obviously been partners of ours, business partners of ours for many, many years, um, in that we're all kind of in the same sector. What we tried to do in 2018 was to enable uh, some of the profitability of the minibus taxi sector to be returned back to the hands of minibus taxi operators. So one of the gripes is that um, you know, these operators are kind of seen as you know on the fringe of our economy. when that nothing could be further from the truth. They are actually the heartbeat of our economy. They make our economy uh, move. Um, And in truth, you know, the grassroots minibus taxi operators, you know, just getting enough money, you know, to kind of survive and not participating in any of the... Um, economic activity of the sector, so no participation in the fuel spend, no participation in the insurance revenues, or finance revenues, or vehicle sale revenues, or refurbishment revenues. So what we thought uh, would work really well is that if they were a shareholder in SA Taxi and we participated, you know, because we vertically integrated in all of these areas, then they would participate. So that was the idea of the deal, Um, you know, strategically uh, we think it was absolutely sound, and it aligned us with our most important stakeholders, being the industry. Um, unfortunately, that deal was done in twenty eighteen. Uh, twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen were kind of, you know, groundbreaking. Years for us, we did better than we'd ever done before, um, and then of course we went into COVID, so uh, and everything that's happened since. So that's unfortunately rendered this deal um, you know, unprofitable or underwater, and we're going to have to try and work a way out uh, with the banks to reposition this. Um, it's not our debt, you know. That is debt between the 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 the, bank, well, the funders of Santico and Santico itself, um, but we would want Santico to be. Uh, um, in the best position possible, and we're trying to facilitate the right discussions between those two parties, and we'll try and step in, you know, wherever we can to, to, to make this uh, as beneficial for everyone as possible. Uh, Sintaka, obviously, you know, to your original question, um, they obviously understand everything in the sector probably better than any of us. And, um, you know, they, they realize that this is a difficult time in the sector and, you know, their investments or in, in, in SA Taxi, but together their investments individually in the sector are worth less right now because there's just less profitability.
0: Yeah, that makes absolute sense. So the last question on SA Taxi is probably the... The hardest one, and that is because, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around provisioning and the loans, et cetera, et cetera. Lots and lots and lots of technical stuff. I think a lot of people in the market, you know, <laughs> there's really two types. Those who are confused and those who are suddenly, you know, long-standing banking experts You know everything about rolling loans. Like Twitter is an amazing place. But um, the question I wanted to ask you outright uh, is, is SA Taxi okay? It's a little bit unfair, but uh, you know, in three years time, are we still, you know, will I be a shareholder in a business that's still there? And, and, and how, much, like, how much of a red alert are you on? You know, are you getting kind of ahead of the pack here to say, all right, we need to make some big changes because otherwise it's going to go away? Or did this sneak up on you? And this obviously is the question everyone's asking. You know, this happened very quickly. You know, how did it happen so fast? You know, how bad is it? So I think just uh, I'll leave it as open-ended as that for you to comment. And then I want to talk about a couple of the other businesses in the group before we wrap up.
1: So what, so what we're trying to do is we are trying to um, put a business plan in place which renders SA Taxi to be a sustainable business going forward and also a business that can grow going forward, um, albeit at a, at a lower rate than what we uh, would have seen uh, in the past. Um, did this thing sneak up on us? Uh, certainly not, and anybody who is kind of an avid um financial analyst, you know, would have noticed that. Uh, you could have seen it by easy things such as the level of profitability um, of SA Taxi. Um, you would have seen it by, you know, again, that cool graph that you spoke about, which shows our average collections. What we saw is that our average collections recovered to about nine somewhere between 85 and 95% of what we had seen prior to COVID, but didn't fully recover. And whilst that sounds like a great mark, I always say, uh, you know, when my daughter comes home and says, Dad, I got uh, 95% for a test, you know, that, that's that's a huge celebration. Um, but in business, if you're at 95% of operations, your profit normally only sits somewhere between 80 and 100. So you're losing a quarter of your profitability. Um, and at 95%, um, again, that was heavily impacting profitability of SA Taxi and cash flows in SA Taxi. And um, our strategy had been, as I said, to do smaller things um, on the, I don't understand the outskirts of the business because changing credit is, is in the heart of the business, collecting better cutting costs and and increasing our QRT strategy to refurbish more cars and refinance more cars into that middle segment we spoke about. So we had done a whole lot of operational or made a whole lot of operational changes in the business, um, but we're still reliant on the sector recovering. So it certainly didn't uh, uh, creep up on us. But after three years of of nothing happening uh, and then coming back in January and seeing load shedding, which created more um, uh, traffic density and hence it made it more difficult for our operators to make money because they just you know couldn't travel as much as they normally would in the busy hours, uh, we felt that we had to actually do something a little bit more um, bold. What did we do? Really what we did is we said if this market is contracting from a profitability perspective, that means you can advance less credit into it um, and as soon as you make that decision, there were some knock-on decisions. So the first Uh, knock-on is that, well, if you have to contract credit, you can do less deals. Um, That was both to the top end of the market, but also to the mid-segment. If you're going to do less deals in the mid-segment, what that really means is that all the vehicles that you repossess, in the old days, we would refurbish and refinance back into that mid-segment. We had more repossessions to do than before because we didn't repossess during COVID, and we needed to actually increase that, but what we saw was the mid-segment had shrunk. So as soon as you are more selective on credit, it means everything that you repossess cannot be repaired. Only about three quarters can, one quarter can't, and then that then means that you're going to incur a greater loss when you repossess a car. Because you're going to scrap that car or auction the car, as opposed to repair it and sell it at a higher price. Um, And that's really what this uh, provisioning model does, and I'm getting a bit technical, so I apologize to my mother-in-law here. Um, but really what that does is it means our, our losses going forward uh, need to be provided for. And what we're trying to do is to reset the business by providing for those losses now in totality. And then going forward, you just need to provide for the movements in those loss ratios as, a, as opposed to kind of resetting everything in one year. Um, was that too aggressive? I'm not sure. But should the market have seen or expected some type of plan? Uh, most definitely we could not have just carried on, as you said, hope is not a strategy.
0: Something I've noticed, and I just want to confirm if I'm right or not, the order in which you talk about businesses in your, uh, in your earnings announcements changes over time, and I'm, t- I'm convinced it's not by accident. I think towards the end of last year, Newton was first. So there was a long time where it was We Buy Cars, then there was all the excitement about Newton. It's just it's something I've noticed, you know, and no one talks about Newton. Even though it's been rebranded, etc., etc., it's such a good business. But it just kind of gets ignored, right? It just the headlines don't work. Newton owner X Y Z is not a headline, and so people don't actually look at it. But I think you know it'll be good to just spend a couple of minutes on you know that business, so people understand there's more to this group than just SA Taxi and We Buy Cars. There's another entire business called Newton, and it's a good business, and it's been there for a long time. It's the old TCRS. And I think maybe just a couple of minutes so people understand what that thing is. And so they go and actually dig and have a look, you know, look beyond the headlines.
1: So Ghost, that really is an amazing business. Um, It's a business driven by uh, huge data sets and technology. Um, And really, what we've seen over there is that unlike um, the SA Taxi business, what we've seen is that structure. We like to invest in business where there's kind of a structural Um, element of those businesses where they, you know, structure that business is built into either a local or global economy. Um, I've I've explained how we see the taxi business being so structural to South Africa, Um, but over here what we've seen is that uh, the, the economic environment and the socio-economic environment has actually improved for this business throughout COVID. So what is it that we do? Uh, What we do over here is we use um, technologies, things like call center technologies, um, data analytic technologies, communication technologies, payment portals, all of these type of um, digital engagement uh, systems that you've heard about. We use those type of systems to manage a corporate's customer base. Sounds like I'm getting a bit technical, but what we started off doing is managing collections on behalf of banks, retailers, anybody who has some type of credit exposure to a consumer. So what are you really doing over here? On the one hand, what you're doing is you're saying you need better data than the bank to work out who can pay and who can't pay. You need to score that person to work out how much money they can pay and then you need to work out how that person likes to interact. Is it someone that likes to talk on the phone? Is it someone that likes to engage digitally? Is it someone that you uh, direct into the original store to pay? Um, So a lot of it goes around scoring the propensity to repay, uh, scoring contactability, because if you can't contact the person you can do nothing, and then working out transactability, how this person likes to transact with you. And that's not just the cash transaction, that's the, the, the engagement transaction. So, That's typically what we do. The beautiful thing is that we don't only do that in South Africa, we do that using our South African infrastructure, staff, systems, etc, but to manage um, the customer bases for corporates all over the world, mainly in, obviously, South Africa, but Australia, uh, the, the UK, and more and more the US. Uh, what has happened? That just say why is it that I said that structurally this has been better for this business? Elsewhere in the world, no one wants to work. You cannot find people who want to work um, in a call center or anything like that. So there is a shortage of semi-skilled labour elsewhere in the world, and of course in South Africa we've got an abundance of semi-skilled labour at a very um, cheap cost compared globally. Uh, number two, our accent is fantastic in South Africa uh number three our time zone is is really really good and number four although people kind of um like to knock our infrastructure from a telecoms perspective our infrastructure is actually pretty good in south africa um, and able especially if you think of the people we're competing against which would be other countries we're competing against india and the philippines Um, and then a final thing is that the south african work from home uh, and hybrid working systems have been a lot better than what we've seen in uh, India, the Philippines and Mexico. So South Africa is very, very well positioned to provide these services to international um, corporates and uh, we've done really, really well in in kind of growing these types of services. As I said, we started off in, in connecting debt, but it goes all the way from uh, onboarding customers to, we call it CXM, customer experience management, so how do you engage with your customer in the ordinary course of their their life cycle with the business, Uh, collecting early stage, late stage, uh, retentions, which would be keeping people as customers. We do a lot of that for retailers, for e-commerce businesses. And then everything that, uh, another great thing that we've seen is that uh, a lot of these e-commerce businesses don't want to do anything physical. So they'll do all of the um, kind of sales, but when it comes to delivery or fulfillment, that I want to deliver the goods, that I want to have to uh, have the goods returned, et cetera, et cetera. And we can manage that through our our, um, systems. Um, So this is a business that is growing. We are growing international revenues really, really quickly. Um, We are fulfilling that all from South Africa or predominantly from South Africa, which gives you a nice hedge in terms of your earning. Aussie Dollar, US Dollar or, or Pound and Euro revenues against a infrastructure and uh, this is really a very exciting business. Um, highly cash generative, easily able to pay a 50% uh, dividend which gives a good flow up and the last thing we do which is purely a South African business um, is we also in the sector buy non-performing loan claims from banks and retailers for so many cents in the rand and we are then able to collect on those books uh, for profit and that's kind of uh, our traditional business of course we've grown you know much broader than that but that was our traditional business and that does very well in this environment as
0: well. Yeah, I told you my kitten would join us. I call him SA Taxi now because he keeps me up at night. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I think I've got you for a few more minutes and uh we have to talk about We Buy Cars, obviously. So I'm a massive petrol head. Anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that. And to see what has happened with We Buy Cars for me has been incredibly interesting. I have a lot of friends who regularly change their cars. If you are into cars, you don't buy and hold something for seven years. That's not how it works. So I've seen the impact WeBuyCars has had, for example, on stock availability on Gumtree. All those people who used to immigrate and be desperate, desperate sales, those are gone because WeBuyCars is this liquidity flaw in the market for basically everything. It's been fascinating for me because I'm so close to that space to actually see what's happened. And it was the main reason I was so bullish on transaction capital over the past couple of years because I think WeBuyCars is a very interesting business. Uh, of course, it was originally a NUSBAS intended acquisition that was blocked by the ComCom. And funnily enough, at the time I thought, mm, I'm not sure I get that, but I now know there are so many searches for cars that start on We Buy Cars, as opposed to on Autotrader or on cars.co.za. It's a bit like Amazon, actually, you know, in that people then start searching for a product on Amazon and not Google. So it's become this very powerful platform business, clearly. Obviously, the worry, is that the margin on each car is not gigantic. I mean, that's the entire model. And so the only question I really want to, you know, go with on We Buy Cars is, as we enter into this, you know, at the moment, consumer affordability is an issue, interest rates are high, you know, demand for used cars, will that hold up? If it doesn't, you potentially end up left with a whole lot of inventory, you know, and uh, and you've got to deal with that. I suppose the I suppose my question is, how do investors know that we're not going to have an SA Taxi situation at we Buy Cars in the next year or two years?
1: Yes, so I think WeBuyCars um, and SA Taxi have obviously very, very different risk profiles. Again, we are extremely excited about WeBuyCars um, and we see kind of the medium and long-term growth prospects for that business as being absolutely amazing. Um, the first thing is that Why cars is different to most other um, auto-trading businesses, quite frankly, elsewhere in the world, is that we procure all of our cars directly from consumers. Um, And we sell the vast majority of what we buy from consumers also to consumers. So, Ghost, what that allows us to do is is it allows us to um, trade within the market so when cars when prices go up yes we have to pay bar for more but then we also sell for more and when prices go down yes we buy for less but we also sell for less um so we move with that market and it allows us to lock a constant margin between bar price and sell price uh this is very different to others who would be you know buying cars from oem certainly a new trader um you know a new vehicle trader has got the cost pressures of an oem um, so on the one hand, you've got very disjointed markets, you've got you know, things like metal prices and, and exchange rates and interest rates affecting the cost of the car, but on the selling side, you know, that's the consumer market, what's the state of the consumer, whereas our, our exposure is pretty much always consumer. So that allows us to, to manage margin. Um, I think the other thing which is very very important is again structural, you know, why did we invest into this business? Because structurally what we see in South Africa is that more and more people are becoming first-time vehicle owners. And if they are going to become first-time vehicle owners, they're going to buy a second-hand car and probably a cheaper second-hand car. So we are real, we trade cars across the entire spectrum from one day old to 20 plus years old. But I would say that our area of expertise is on the older side Uh, of that spectrum, Um, where we're able to price a car that is whatever six or seven or eight years old and sell that car. Um, So structurally, if you're going to be buying a new car, sorry, a car for the first time, you'd probably be buying on that end uh, of the market. So we see kind of a structural tailwind behind this business for a long period of time. Uh, We see that we are able to flex margins together with uh, the market. Uh, We don't get caught with stock. Uh, essentially there are algorithms in the business uh, that keep on seeing where where other cars are priced in the market and we keep ours just cheaper than everybody else's so when prices turn which is what happened in the first quarter of uh or the first half of, of this year for we buy cars when prices turn you need to trade out of those cars so you actually incur you incur your loss there and then but all in all it's an amazing business uh, we saw huge growth, uh, certainly on the finance and insurance side of the business, which was untapped by We Buy Cars. And uh, if you take a look at at many of kind of the vehicle businesses across the world, they seem to make more money out of finance and insurance than trading. Now, right now, we make the vast majority of our profits. Um, and last year, this is a business that made, you know. Close to 800 million rand. Uh, that was the bulk of that was trading cars. If we can make more money out of finance than we do out of trading, uh, you know, then we think we've got a fantastic opportunity in buy cars. It's not going to be as good as it was in the past um, for this year, but we think that this is kind of the market's changing, and we just need this business to readjust. As I said, you move with the consumer market, and then you can continue to grow thereafter.
0: Something else I just want to test with you is, you know, if you're looking at locking in a relatively fixed margin on a car and you're doing a lot of older stuff, if someone's trying to sell a Porsche for a million Rand and the price moves 10% against them, there's a hundred K gone. But if you're trying to sell a 70,000 Rand car and the price moves 10%, you've lost seven grand's worth of margin, but you were probably looking to make 10 or 12 on that car, I would guess. So there's, I suppose my question is, is my understanding correct? On the lower end of the market, you can have these percentage moves in the value of the car, but you can still, you've got a good buffer there of profitability. Whereas on the more expensive cars, a percentage move is obviously a much bigger absolute amount and dealerships often go for an absolute margin, not always a percentage margin, even on the more expensive stuff. Is that a fair, is that a fair statement?
1: A- absolutely. So, uh, what we track carefully is, um, the Americans like to call it the ASP, the average selling price. Um, and what, we've, uh, what is the consequence of moving into a weaker market, where there's weaker consumer demand, is that your average selling price reduces. So you'll typically target a lower-end uh, area of the market because people don't have money to buy the Porsches, but they do have money to trade in whatever the, the VW Polos or whatever it might be. So your, your mix of what you sell moves into a cheaper price bracket. And whilst you might make the same percentage margin, in Rands, as you've correctly explained, it's less, um, but your costs of, but your costs can be pretty similar. You still have to you know, uh, price the car, you still have to wash the car, you still have to do a DECRA report on the car. Now, whether you're doing that on a Porsche or a VW Polo, you're still paying the same amount for the DECRA report, you're still paying the same amount for the technicians uh, to, to uh, photograph the car and load it up on your website. So you need to be careful, we need to be very careful of, of that. Um, and, and that's why this business is, is kind of highly, highly, highly technical in working out where the demand is for the market and then how to price that to try and make sure that your RAND and percentage margin makes sense.
0: Last question, because I know I'm actually out of time with you and I'm sure you've got a million other people to talk to. But last one, this is one from Twitter. This is one of the good questions on that thread. How quickly can the GOMO side of the business actually scale and how much capital will it really need to achieve that? Where's that capital going to come from? So obviously that's around the F&I penetration into We Buy Cars. You know, if there's one thing Transaction Capital knows how to do, it's raise money and lend it out. <laughs> That's what you guys have done forever. Um, but maybe just a minute or two on on just Gomo, how quickly you can build that up, the penetration rates, etc. And then I think we can we can probably wrap this up. Guys,
1: so thanks for asking about Gomo. That's a business that obviously we're extremely uh, excited about. Uh, one of the reasons um, you know, for the We Buy Cars vendors to deal, do the deal with us and one of the reasons why we were so excited to do the deal with them is that we felt that we could build our own proprietary finance and insurance business um, and particularly one that can provide finance and insurance into older vehicles. Um, this is exactly what GOMA will do. Typically, what we see is that uh, we'll see an individual come into to buy a car. The car will be older than five years. Banks don't like to finance cars older than five years. Uh, the customer will apply for finance at a bank. Uh, he'll get rejected uh, for asset backed finance at, say, prime plus one, but the bank will approve him on unsecured finance at prime plus nine. So, what the bank's saying is they're saying your credit score is good, but we can't give you the benefit of a lower rate because we can't attribute value to the security, the collateral, which is the car, because they don't know what the car's worth and they don't know what they're going to do with an eight-year-old car if they have to repossess it. Now, we know what the collateral's worth and we know how to sell an eight-year-old and nine-year-old car because we do hundreds of them every day. Um, so that really is kind of a, a, a blending of the skills that we buy cars brings in terms of, number one, being able to value collateral and, and liquidate collateral, but also in being able to get, to distribute product broadly because you know we are selling 12 to 13,000 cars a month and that's 12 to 13,000 opportunities so your we call it origination cost your cost to originate a potential loan insurance product is sunk we are doing it anyway we've got the branches we've got the sales force so that's what we buy cars brings to the party what is a taxi brings to the party is the ability to do everything that you've spoken about credit underwrite collect but also fund what we realized very, very, very quickly is that this opportunity was huge. We'd probably need, you know, this book could be the same size as a taxi book. We'd call it, you know, north of 15 billion. And we didn't think it was the right thing to be building a 15 billion rand portfolio again on uh, Transaction Capital's balance sheet. So the idea is now to write these loans directly on a bank's balance sheet. And then we become a manager earning service of fees and participating in upside. So what does it mean? It means the bank gives us kind of a credit model to follow, a credit scoring model to follow. We write these loans on the bank balance sheet. We earn a fee for managing that portfolio, originating it, collecting, etc. We also earn a fee for on the, against the size of the portfolio, like an asset manager would. So many basis points, you know, against the size of the portfolio. And if you get to 10 or 15 or 20 billion, that can be substantial. And then The bank will earn a net interest margin, the difference between its cost of capital and cost of deposits versus what it charges. And we'll participate in that margin with the bank. So that's our participation in the profit. And then finally, we'll, as we always do, sell insurance and other product into that portfolio base or customer base. So it gives us a real opportunity to to maximize on this opportunity. We can kind of scale quickly using other people's capital. Um, We only see profitability coming out of this kind of from from 25 onwards. So this year, we still lose a bit of money because we haven't really built the portfolio yet. But we've incurred all the cost of hiring the people and designing the products and that type of thing. Um, In 2024, kind of break evenish or thereabouts. And then from 2025, this should be a great growth um, opportunity. And one also that can allow us to diversify from a from a capital and lending perspective outside of just the minibus taxi sector
0: david thank you so much i think we can probably safely leave it there i've used a lot of your time this morning just from my side i just want to thank you for making the time i know you've had an exceptionally horrible couple of weeks and i'm sure you've got a lot of meetings that are much more important than this one that you needed to you know get through and to find space for this i certainly appreciate it and I just want to again remind listeners in case you weren't listening properly at the beginning number one I do have a long position in transaction capital I'll let you know if that changes because I do try to be you know ghosts or nothing if not transparent and uh, and and this one tries to to be to be much the same and the other disclosure point here is no one has paid for this podcast I'm doing this because I think it's hyper topical and because I think I appreciate the fact that David reached out and gave us this opportunity transaction capital has not paid for this podcast nor has anyone else So with that out the way david i just want to wish you luck i guess i am invested um so i have a vested interest here literally and i hope you manage to get through this i've definitely not been jealous of what you must have been through for the past uh, couple of weeks and just as a final comment i haven't asked you about the share trades at the end of last year because i think that's been done to death in the media i think there's been sends announcements there's investor presentations the idea today was i wanted to ask a lot of the questions that haven't otherwise been asked, understand a bit more about the go-forward of the business. So in case anyone's wondering, that's why I didn't go there, because I just I think it's been done in so many places now, and we don't need to rehash the same stuff over and over again. So yeah, David, good luck, genuinely, and uh, I hope you manage to find your way through all of this. Guys, thanks for the
1: support and the good wishes, and also thanks for your time.
0: As always, this podcast was for informational purposes only, and you must do your own research before executing any investments or trades in Transaction Capital or any other shares for that matter. Thank you for listening and I hope this empowers you with more information and a better understanding of what has happened and what could happen in the future at Transaction Capital.